Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Elizabeth Louise Vigée Lebrun. Along with Joseph Bio and Paul Lang, my guest Catherine Bacher is the co-curator of Vigée Lebrun, Woman Artist in Revolutionary France. The exhibition is the first retrospective of Vigée Lebrun's work since a 1982 show at the Kimball Art Museum. It's on view at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art through May 15th. Vigée Lebrun is one of the major portraitists of late 18th century France and the major portrayer, propagandist really, of Marie Antoinette. Vigée Lebrun's pictures, painted over the course of a 50-year career, were favored by European aristocracy not just in Paris and Versailles in the decades before the French Revolution, but in nearly every cultural and political capital across Europe in the decades afterward. The exhibition's excellent catalog was published by the Met and is distributed by Yale University Press. Bacher is a curator at the Met. She has previously worked on Canaletto, Watteau, and Chardin. On the second segment, we'll hear a clip of my August 2014 conversation with Nancy Prinzenthal. A couple weeks ago, Prinzenthal's biography of Agnes Martin, Agnes Martin, Her Life and Art, was awarded the Penn Jacqueline Bograd Weld Award for Biography. Prinzenthal will receive the prize at a ceremony at New York City's New School on April 11th. Amazon offers the book for between $19 and $27, and we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. But first, Catherine Bacher, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative, machine-inspired Art Deco style. Featuring 14 cars and three motorcycles, along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period, now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculptedinsteel for more. Member previews are on now for A Japanese Constellation, Toyo Ito, Sanaa, and Beyond at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The exhibition opens Sunday, March 13th. See how, inspired by the Pritzker Prize winners Toyo Ito and Sanaa, and refreshingly each other, a new generation of Japanese architects and designers have created socially conscious, endlessly inventive, and dynamic works. Get more information and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. On view now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, a Japanese constellation, Toyo Ito, Sanaa, and beyond. See how, inspired by the Pritzker Prize winners Toyo Ito and Sanaa, and refreshingly each other, a new generation of Japanese architects and designers have created socially conscious, endlessly inventive, and dynamic works. Get more information and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Catherine Bacher, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Let's start with a bit of biography and context before we get into some of the, the paintings. Vigée Lebrun gets her start in Paris in the early 1770s. How is it a young woman in, in her mid to late teens, really, is able to attract clients to a portrait studio? Is, it a, is, it, is she a curiosity or is there a little more there? Vigée Lebrun was born in 55 and so matured into the last quarter of the 18th century. She received rather little formal education, but her father was a portraitist. So as a 12-year-old, when she returned to her family at the end of her schooling, she was allowed to go into his studio and watch what he did and um, use his materials. Unfortunately, he then died, and the family was not too well off, and Vijay's mother, although she married again immediately, felt that she needed her daughter to help to support the family. And so Vijay became a professional artist in her teenage years, primarily for financial reasons. Was she good in her teenage years, or was she more kind of an object of unusual interest? I think she was good in her teenage years. Now, one has always to remember that Vijay Lebrun told her own story. And no matter what, when one tells her story, one is influenced by her telling of it. She began to sign paintings at the age of 18. I asked myself whether they were signed at the time or whether they were signed a little later. But it is certainly the case that at the age of 19, she was exhibiting publicly. And that's pretty young, especially for someone who did not have the usual kind of French academic training. 
first painting in the show dates to when she was 18. It's it's her brother, the paintings in yes, St. Louis. And one assumes that she painted her family, not only because she was close to her family, but because she didn't have any other models. That didn't last for long, though. <laughs> no, it didn't last for long. How did she come to people's attention? Through her family's networks or... Well, I think not through her family's networks, and I do not know through what networks. I would say that she was very good at positioning herself from an early age, but what can she have known before she was 20 years old? She knew their name, and she knew Hubert Robert. These were both very influential artists in Paris at that time. Why? She was invited by Marie-Antoinette to come to Versailles and paint a state portrait when she was 23 years old, absolutely nobody knows. It's an astonishing thing on, on about five levels, yes. We, we, there are, we don't understand how Marie Antoinette would have known about her. Would it have mattered? For, so, for example, Marie Antoinette herself is 23, six months younger than, than Vijay when she summons her to, to Versailles. I'm preoccupied with the idea that this would have mattered to her. She says in her correspondence with her mother, and that is the person for whom the first big portrait was painted, that she had not been satisfied with the artist who had painted her, and there were several. She'd already been in Paris for pretty much of a decade. This is Marie Antoinette saying that. Yeah, that she didn't like any of the portraits that had been painted of her. And although a woman artist who was the daughter of a hairdresser could not be a friend of the Queen of France, perhaps it did matter to the Queen that they were exactly the same age. And over the several years that Vichy de Brun painted her, they were also both of childbearing age and both had children and both lost a child. Nothing is made of this, but I, I have a sense that it must have mattered in some way and that the queen must have been responsive to her partly because of something that they shared, even if rather remotely. That first painting is Marie Antoinette in court dress, and it's at the Kunsthistorisches in Vienna. It, it, it's a it's a it's a big attempt at a big statement. It's about you know nine feet tall. It's a very big statement. It was made for Maria Therese of Austria, the sitter's mother. It was the first of only two state portraits that she ever painted, even though she painted many members of the aristocracy and lots of royalty. And it's the most fascinating picture in a variety of ways. One of the things that's interesting about it is, of course, that it's never changed hands. It was ordered by the queen, sent to the Empress of Austria, descended in the royal family, and belongs to the state. So it's in wonderful, wonderful condition. And of course, it's very big, so we're very happy to have it. But here's what interests me the most about this picture. My Antoinette was a Habsburg. She has a projecting lower lip, slightly bulging eyes, and a very long jaw. And she is not a particularly beautiful woman, but she liked this portrait, and her mother liked it. We know that it's an accurate representation because we have other portraits of Marie Antoinette. I find this very fascinating. The other thing I find fascinating is she never worked on this large scale, so there's this huge column, which is much too big. And the painting of the drapery of the skirt it's really not very good. But the thing one always has to keep in mind about these portraits is the head is the same size nevertheless. The head is almost always the same size. She seems to conceal that Habsburg lantern jaw by making the face, by emphasizing the oval of Marie Antoinette's face in, in every picture. Well, the whole effort of being a good portraitist is that you should look like yourself, but that you should also look better. That's what portraiture is about. Your colleague and co-curator Joseph Bio notes that the painting was, was well-received. How do we know that, and how did the painting become known? We know it was well-received because Maria Theresa wrote to Marie Antoinette, telling her how very pleased she was with it, in her own terms. One of the things she says about it is really quite interesting. In the, in the first instance, she said that it wasn't so important to her to have her daughter's resemblance it was important to her to see her daughter in her role as queen. It was widely stated that she had magnificently beautiful skin and perfect posture. 
and that she walked as if her feet were not touching the ground. And Maria Teresa must have been very proud of this and wanted to see what her daughter looked like as a relatively mature woman. So we know what both the sinner and the recipient thought of it. So were these early Marie Antoinette paintings important in bringing in more patronage and more commissions for, for Vigée, or did that happen another way? I'm sure they were important, but Vigée is one of the artists who operated both at the court and in Paris. As you'll know of the late 18th century, the social, the social life of the upper classes in France began to reshape itself. And there was the court aspect, but there was also the town aspect. It was a time when there was very lively and interesting theater and when there was lots of music performed and when there was a very lively social life in the more private setting of Parisian townhouses. And in fact, Vichy Le operated in both of these places. And it may be that the two strains are slightly disconnected. I don't honestly know, but certainly she knew many people of interest in Paris, not only people of high birth, but people of newer wealth who were interested in the arts in a more general and probably a more modern way. And she had patrons in this group in the same way that she had patrons at court. She runs a, a kind of intellectual salon in Paris. Do we know if that was important or impactful in generating commissions, or maybe that the process of running that salon is what you just described? No, I'm completely sure that it was important. That salon was certainly part of her operation. In fact, it was part of the joint operation she had with her husband. Her husband had been trained as a painter, but he functioned principally as the most important art dealer in Paris at that time. And they moved among very elegant people. It's difficult to know how she could have had a salon when she had such a very limited formal education. In the same way, it's difficult to know how she could have been so technically gifted when she had so little of the usual kind of formal training. But it is certainly the case that her social life impacted her work in a variety of ways, not least of which that she had acquaintance among the people who sat for her. So during during this period, the official French painting exhibitions, also called salons, of course, are, are more or less de rigueur. Are, are they important to Vigée? They're extremely important. They're so very important. In the first instance, the Royal, instance, the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture which lasted from the middle of the 17th century until 1791, was the sponsor of the Salon. And the Salon was the first public exhibition, effectively. So that from the end of the 17th century onward, these exhibitions, which most of which were held in the Louvre Palace, were the only public exhibitions that existed and therefore, it was extremely important to be able to join the Salon and to be able to show of 550 members of the Salon from its inception until it was shut down after the French Revolution, 14 were women. And Vigée Lebrun should have been excluded because she was married to a dealer. Theoretically, nobody could belong to the Academy if they were married to a dealer. And if you didn't belong, you couldn't show. So, yes, it was hugely important for her. She was admitted because the queen asked the king to admit her and the king asked the arts minister. And therefore, in she went. And yes, it had an enormous effect on her career, for sure. Your catalog essay charts the 200-year history of, of the experience of women in the Royal Academy. What is a more typical experience than Vigée's? Well, a more typical experience is an artist who was represented by her father or her husband and was admitted for that reason. And no other woman who was admitted had any connection with the art trade. So she was somewhat unique. Now, it must be said that the last of the women to enter were the most important. She and Adelaide Labiguiard and the still life painter Valais Coster. But the one who had the exceptional career was Vigée Lebrun. 
we'll, we'll get back to the timeline in a second. But while we're on gender, so Vijay Lebrun is, is in Paris until the revolution. And, and we'll get back to that part in a moment. And then after the revolution, she's traveling throughout Europe, Vienna, Venice, Rome, St. Petersburg, all over. How much impact does gender have on her career first in Paris and then in some of the other places? Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? I don't know if it was recognized as a big deal, but that it was certainly helpful. Vichy, firstly, there weren't many. Vichy Lebrun's access was partly because she was an extremely attractive woman. One of the things about portrait settings that's occurred to me while working on this exhibition is that it's really tiresome to sit for your portrait. Most of us have never had our portrait painting. We might have had a studio photograph made, and even that was rather boring. But in the 18th century, the only way to spread your image around was to have a portrait painted. And people of very high standing had to have quite a lot of them painted because, certainly in the case of the royal family, they had to be presented as they grew older and as they grew into their various roles as they matured. And so they knew they would have to sit for portraits all the time, and many of them didn't like it. A wonderful example of somebody who didn't like it, who is sort of the opposite but was equally of interest, is Benjamin Franklin. He said, I hate to have my portrait painted, but he knew he needed to do it because it was part of his public persona. If you could entertain someone while you were painting them, you were likely to get a better result. If you could converse with a person, they were more likely to be animated. Another thing she took very seriously was that her sitters should be comfortable. If you look at these pictures, you'll see that the people are seated comfortably most of the time and that they have these enormous cushions and the arms of sofas to lean on. She wanted them to be comfortable so that they would not look wooden, but instead animated. And I think she was very clever in that way. And that her position as a young woman was surely helpful to her. You know, I wrote in my notes that she made about a thousand pictures in all. Am I, did, I, did I note that correctly? I mean, that's an awful lot of mostly, almost entirely portraits. Joseph Bio thinks this is the case. I have never tried to understand how he reaches this number. But a thing which is useful to bear in mind is that she herself made lists of all the people who sat for her. And they are published in her souvenir. And they're in the hundreds. It used to be said that she painted about 600 pictures. And that's now recognized as too small a number. But as we know more and more about what's in the smaller museums, around the world and more about what's in private collections. And as more things are photographed, one often finds that there are larger numbers of images than one supposed. In many of the individual entries in the catalog, the entry author notes two or three or even four versions of, of different portraits. We in, always in try to keep track of that, but it's a very difficult thing to explain. And of course, there are levels and levels of replicas. There are paintings by Vigia Lebrun, which are the first version. There are other paintings by her, which are her own replicas of her own work. Nobody knows anything about anybody who worked with her or made replicas on commission. Nobody knows if she had a drapery painter. Nobody knows if most of these things are actually copies. It's a fairly complicated, sub it's a fairly complicated subject. And of course, all of those account to additional numbers, and you have to be careful how many of those you count into the total. So back to Marie Antoinette. After that 1778 portrait uh, in Vienna, we were talking about her next most important portrait of Marie Antoinette comes in 1787. It's a picture of her with her daughters. It's at Versailles. What makes this a particularly notable painting? It's the only other full-length by Vigée Lebrun that was painted from the model. That is to say, it was a state commission from the Bâtiment du Roi. The composition had to be approved by the king and the queen, and it was intended for the 1787 Salon with a sort of political motive. 
Marie Antoinette was extremely unpopular by then. She was, I think, never very popular. She was very young and also brought up to the role. She was an Austrian, and the Austrians were traditional enemies of France. And her behavior at court, which was always quite extravagant, was a source of distress to people in France, if not something uglier. And so this picture was commissioned in order to show the queen in what was thought to be a more sympathetic way and to show her in the role of a mother. It was not a great success because people thought that she looked too sad and she had a reason to be sad because during the time it was painted, she lost a child. Which is, which is referenced in the painting. Exactly, by the empty cradle. And so, firstly, the picture was not delivered on time because the Queen was unpopular and Bichu Lebrun was uncertain. So there was an enormous hole on the wall, the most important place in this vast room. And people didn't like that because they felt that a state portrait was their property and they were angry not to see the image of the Queen, which was promised. Then the picture was put up and they didn't like it. They didn't like the Queen that it represented. So this picture, which is now known to every child who goes to school in France was in fact not a success at the time it was painted and not very much seen because the next thing that happened was that the heir to the throne, the Dauphin, died and then Marie Antoinette didn't want to see it either. So it was put away. Possibly that's why it survived the revolution. Well, before we get to the revolution and its extraordinary impact on Vigée's career, Let's just, I guess, maybe pause for a moment to consider where, where she is now. She's made a number of paintings of the Queen. She's done lots of work for kind of for the court and for Nouveau Riche in, in Paris. Do you have a couple favorites from this pre-revolutionary period? I do have. There's Calon, who is a finance minister, a magnificent gentleman in a black suit with a red curtain wearing a white wig. I find this is extraordinarily engaging as a portrait for someone who's posing in his official guise. Then there are several portraits of women which were shown at the salon and which I admire because they are painted on wood and they have the most extraordinary transparency of color. Vigée Lebrun visited Holland and the Netherlands and she saw portraits by Rubensen and she was very, very much influenced by them and began to paint on wood, which gives a very particular effect. There's one of the of the Comtesse de Grammont Caderousse, for example. And they're exceptionally transparent and beautiful in their coloring. These are among my favorite pictures. You know, you mentioned the, the many portraits of women at this period, in this period, and indeed, uh, Vigée paints lots and lots of women. Is the proportion of women to men as portraiture subjects, I don't know, it's probably about 80-20 in this show. It's not right. We have underestimated the men. This was not done deliberately. We just tried to get the best pictures that are available, which is what we always try to do. And when we got to the end, we found that we had underrepresented the men and that we had also underrepresented the children. I was going to ask about that, too. Yeah, both. Yes, you're right. So at the risk of asking maybe an unanswerable question, do you have a guess as to why the paintings of women are better than the paintings of the men? Well, maybe she had more in common with the women, but maybe we should have cast our net a little wider and embraced a few more men. One tends to choose what one thinks of as the best example without registering what the sex or age of the person is, and that's just the way it came out. But it's an, under, it's an underrepresentation of both men and children. There are a couple of marvelous works of paper of children, even babies, in this show, kind of from right about these years, especially from, from the early 1780s. And she painted her own daughter a lot. Oh, did she? Yes, yes she did. I mean, she over painted, her, over her, her, she painted her own daughter a lot. There's a portrait of her own daughter looking in a mirror. There's a portrait of her own daughter uh, largely naked, although correctly covered. There's a portrait of her own daughter in her teenage years as a sort of goddess with a basket of flowers on her head. She painted 
a larger representation of children than we have shown, although we do have these two wonderful portraits that have the royal children in them, not only the portrait of Marie Antoinette with the children, but a portrait of the oldest daughter, who was called Madame Royale, and of the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, seated in a garden and holding a nest of baby birds. So we've not let them out, left them out altogether, which is also interesting in some other ways. She was a good still-life painter. The French operated on the hierarchy of genre. You should wish to paint history, which included the Bible and mythology. And then if you couldn't reach up to that august level, next came portraiture. And um, next after portraiture came still life. And she would also have been an absolutely marvelous still life painter. She's very, very good at painting fruit and flowers. And did manage to paint a few history subjects. You know, two years after that portrait of Marie Antoinette and her children that we were discussing, the French Revolution blows the doors off of everything. As as we keep mentioning Marie Antoinette, I suppose it's fairly obvious that Viget was, was very close to royalty and to the aristocracy. What impact does the revolution have on her? And does it change her circumstance and her art or mostly just her circumstance? I really think mostly just her circumstance, but it changed her circumstance in every way. She was very, very frightened. She writes herself that she left immediately after the march on Versailles. She felt personally frightened. And she says that she got into a public coach together with her daughter, who was a little girl of six or seven years old, and the daughter's governess, dressed down, a public vehicle, and she was escorted to the gates of Paris, where there used to be barriers during the Revolution, by her husband on horseback and by Hubert Robert also on horseback. And she represents this as they are seeing her out of Paris safely. She went to Italy, and she presented this first as an occasion to go abroad because it was customary for highly trained artists in France to complete their education by going to Italy. And so she didn't always say, I'm running away from the revolution. She sometimes said, I'm going to Italy to complete my education. In point of fact, she felt that she had no choice. And when she got there, she had absolutely no assets. And so she had to make a new career for herself, which she did with the largest amount of skill that could possibly be imagined by seeking out people whom she had known in France, including foreigners, and by making these very good connections abroad. So the first place she went was to Florence, and there she wanted to see the Gallery of the Grand Dukes of Tuscany at the Uffizi, which is a self-portrait gallery. And she was very, very happy to be asked to paint her self-portrait for the gallery. And she went on to Rome, where she opened her first studio outside France, painted a picture of herself, and put it on exhibition there. So that then she began to invite people to visit her, and they could see this self-portrait, and they could see the artist herself, and they could see what a very good painter she was. And in this way, she began to make other connections and to receive other commissions. She always worked her sources well. One of her earliest commissions, some of her earliest commissions abroad were from the Queen of Naples, whose name was Maria Carolina and who was my Antoinette's sister. So shortly she was showing her work in Rome and Maria Carolina heard that she had arrived, came to see her work presumably and invited her to paint the Neapolitan royal children. She was very, very good at finding her way when she went abroad. My guest is Catherine Bacher. We'll be right back after a break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience 
created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And now back to my conversation with Catherine Bacher. I have not seen the show in New York yet, but in the catalog, two self-portraits, one a pastel of, of Vijay of herself in traveling costume and that oil painting that's now at the Uffizi seemed to be kind of a hinge between France and, and the European travels. You mentioned the oil painting a moment ago. Why also a pastel? The pastel is terrific. Pastel because it's such a typical sort of a thing for this artist to do. She goes off in a public coach. She gets to Rome some months later. She makes a self-portrait in traveling clothes, very simply dressed, very dressed down, in which she looks about 19 years old to me. Yeah, no, or younger. Smiling <laughs> like a child. And she presents this self-portrait to the director of the French Academy in Rome. Now, the training of a French artist was to go to Italy if you had official backing and to study at the Académie de France à Rome and there finish your education by traveling and seeing the wonders of Italy, by looking at the antiquities, by drawing them, by meeting other artists. Well, this was not an opportunity that she had but she turned her exile into this opportunity and gave this pastel to Ménageau, who was the director of the Académie de France à Rome, and he in turn gave her an apartment to live in. So that she made a situation for herself which was parallel. And this is written on the back, not the story, but the ownership, because Ménageau then wrote that he would give it back to her daughter, which he later did. So it's very typical of her that she would show herself as beautiful, that she would show herself as young, and that she would use her self-portrait to find free housing in Rome. You mentioned a few moments ago that her style doesn't change much as she's traveling to cities such as Florence, Rome, Vienna, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and so on. Is that a conscious decision in that maintaining her, her Frenchness and, and her, her professional ties to French loyalty are important everywhere she goes? I would think that's probably right. She was a royalist, but I think also her reputation abroad must to some degree have hinged on her Frenchness. And one of the reasons I would think this is so is that French taste has often been a leading taste in the arts and was at this time. French dress has often been leading in society and was at this time. And the French language was spoken everywhere she went because French was the international language then. I really never thought too much about this and I didn't read anything about it until relatively lately. But she didn't trouble to learn any Italian or German when she was in Vienna or Russian when she was in St. Petersburg because everyone spoke French then. So yes, I think that her qualities as a French woman and as a French stylist, if we can say it that way, were probably important for her continuing career. And she was herself so attached to her nationality that she would have wanted to maintain this. I think probably as a personal matter, even if it hadn't been beneficial to her career. And she certainly never failed to notice what was beneficial. So I think French is very important in every aspect. So to art historians in going through the post-revolution oeuvre, group it by geography and 
consciously consider what are the major or best paintings by geography, or does that matter not so much? I don't know how much it matters, but the period immediately after the French Revolution was such a difficult period culturally, more broadly, because it because it it fed into the Napoleonic Revolution, so to say, and it was an extremely difficult time for artists because once the French Revolution erupted, there were no more commissions. The people who would have commissioned this sort of art, but not only this sort, history paintings as well, there was simply, the, the disruption was so tremendous that there was nowhere for works of art to emerge in a certain sense. People, people who were living in this disrupted way, either because they were participating in the revolution or because they were against it, were not spending their time sitting in portrait studios or, you know, buying pictures of Adonis and the hunt. It wasn't the culture. And this, this is something that, that spread. And it was very, very difficult for French artists because the generation next after her had an extremely hard time. I mean, if you think of Baron Gros and Guerin, these people, they lost years because they emerged these artists who emerged at the time of David, and many of them in David's studio, they would normally have gone to the Academy of France. And pretty soon it was closed. And there was nobody to buy their work. So they were wandering around, loosely itinerant, shall we say, painting portrait miniatures for people. A lot of the artists who stayed in France also had a very difficult time. L'Abbé Guillard, who was admitted to the Academy at the same moment as Vigée Lebrun, was a person with Republican sympathies. She believed in the revolution. She believed in opening the academy. She stayed in France. She, however, also had very little work for a decade or more. Most of the artists who were fully mature or maturing in the 1780s lost time from 1789 well into the 90s and sometimes longer because of the political disruptions in Europe. And so it changed all their lives. And one of the reasons she's so unusual is that she went abroad and made an entirely new and equally successful career. Hardly anybody did that. And hardly anybody moved from one national culture to another as easily as she apparently did. That's a really striking thing. I mean, it's possible to miss as you flip through the paintings in the show. I mean, just the range of geography is, is astonishing. Especially St. Petersburg. Not too many people took off for St. Petersburg, especially not too many women. Before we get to St. Petersburg, are there any paintings from Vienna and Venice that you, you particularly like? The Toledo painting of Isabella Teotihuacan. Oh, this is a wonderful picture. And of course, it shows the entire other side of this artist's production. It is not to say that all these pictures are uniform. Isabella Teotihuacan Marini was the mistress of Saint-Nom. And Saint-Nom was a cultured figure who went to France and stayed out of the country for some years. And she became his mistress. And Vigée Lebrun painted the picture for him privately in an effort to bring this woman or keep this woman in his, in his life. She didn't stay in his life too long. She was married to somebody before and she was married to somebody after and she didn't go to France. But apparently he was passionately in love with her and Vigée Lebrun painted this as what she apparently conceived as a private expression of his care for this woman. And on the back of it, it has an equally rather private inscription explaining that she's done this. She did it also as a gift. I, one of the things I find interesting about this artist is that she can paint bedroom pictures of women. And Isabella Teotoki Marini is one. And Skavronskaya, the second portrait of Skavronskaya painted in Russia, is another. You think of all the men who, to whose studio women came, and, and you think about the roles the women played. There cannot have been anyone who saw more clearly than Vigée Lebrun exactly what the status of the individual woman was not only in society, but in culture, in wealth, in personal attachment to one or another person in her life. I find this very, very interesting. 
of all the places to which she traveled, I guess she spent the most time in Vienna and, and in St. Petersburg. And, and stylistically, again, they're, they're, they're really pretty similar. Any particular paintings from those two places that... Vienna is perhaps not as well represented in this exhibition as it might have been. A very beautiful example of a Viennese picture is one of the Princess von zu Liechtenstein, it's Iris. She was a very young woman, high-born and well-married, and she sat as Iris actually for a full-length portrait, which we did not borrow for the exhibition, as well as for this head and shoulder study. And I think it's a magnificent portrait of a very young and very charming aristocrat. The palette is also very beautiful. Disha Lebrun was good with a lot of rather strange and not particularly typical colors, such as bronze. And this is a picture which has this beautiful bronze shading over to red. And if you look at the photograph closely, you'll see that there are rays of different colors in the background. That's the way she expresses iris in this picture. So for Vienna, that's one of my favorite pictures. Another beautiful one is a portrait of the Duchesse de Guise, who appears several times in this exhibition. The Duchesse de Guise married very, very young. Her her mother was a friend of Marie Antoinette. She left France as a child, and she was living in Vienna in the years of the terror and at the time that Marie Antoinette was executed. And you can see in this lovely but rather forlorn face that this woman has lived hard in a certain way while still very, very young. And I find the picture rather touching. It's not the only portrait in the show of the sitter looking off to the viewer's left, but it's darn close. I'm not particularly aware of that. Is that unusual? I, I don't know. Thought I thought much I, about it. I did notice that she's looking off, you know, kind of in the direction. Yes, of, exactly. You know, traditional well, a lot of path. a lot of these other breast sitters look at you, right, more and than, not away more from than you. I was almost expecting, yeah. And I think. That's, that's another characteristic which is somewhat particular to her and has to do with the degree to which she engaged with her sitters, as does the fact that they quite often have their mouths slightly open and you can see their teeth. I thought this was very strange, and it is something fairly unusual, fairly common in her portraits. And as I look at them over some months, very close at hand, I think to myself that it's perhaps likely this is the case because she was talking to them and this imparts a certain degree of animation. She paints herself with her mouth slightly open, too. St. Petersburg is, is a major stop and, and maybe her most successful stop monetarily, at least. Her, the, the, the fees she charged for portraits were the subject of some discussion. Peter Burroughs' fees were extremely high most of the time. There's a portrait of a boy, which was, he's called Henrik Lubomirsky, which was painted just before she left France. And apparently, the price paid for this picture was higher than any price David ever received in his career. Now, it is also the case that when she was in Russia, she charged enormously high prices, and this is reported in the international correspondence, as you've noticed. She, she was able to get away with it. She says that she made some money in St. Petersburg, and she invested it in the wrong bank, and the bank failed. So she says she An just went out and made too, some more. Something like 14,000 rubles. Yeah. She just went and out and made some more money. Yeah. And she was also able to keep it, which her husband wasn't able to do. During the French Revolution, what her husband did was sell all the property of the émigrés. Vijay Lebrun was herself an émigré. She was obliged to leave, and the state could have seized their property because France is a joint property country. And so Lebrun divorced her, and he continued his business, which was during those years, to sell the property of all the aristocrats who went abroad. These were two very clever people. We've talked a bit about the reasons she was popular and attracted so many commissions. Are there any 
reasons why a French painter and a French woman would be so readily, eagerly even accepted and hired uh, in St. Petersburg? I think for the same reason we were speaking of before, Catherine the Great had a tremendous interest in and taste for French culture. She had agents representing her in Paris who bought pictures for her. She had correspondence with people who were reporting to her what was going on in Paris before the revolution. I think there was there was a taste in St. Petersburg. And of course, sometimes taste travels rather slowly. The chemise dress, which is a subject which was the subject of a lot of controversy as far as it involved Marie Antoinette because it was thought inappropriate for the queen to appear in these white cotton chemise dresses. Well, by the time Vigée Lebrun got to St. Petersburg, the ladies of fashion in St. Petersburg were wearing the chemise dress. And by the time she returned home, the Napoleonic court was wearing what was essentially the chemise dress. So French taste... She was she was carrying French taste, but she was also following it. And it was a taste of the best educated people as well as of the wealthy people, which tended to be somewhat the same for obvious reasons in those days. So she had no difficulty in that way. Although she didn't speak other languages and although she was a woman on her own, she was she was moving with a sort of bubble of interest in French culture, which she represented. I guess the two good examples in the show of of that chemise dress are the portrait of Countess Anna Ivanovna Tolstaya and Vijay's portrait of her daughter is Flora. That's it. And Countess Tolstaya was a woman who was very much interested in French culture. And eventually she left Russia and went to live in Paris. And she stayed there until she died. And she's interesting for Vijay in another way. One of the last really great portraits Vijay painted was of her son, Count Tolstoy, which was shown in the 1824 Salon. Um, He died shortly thereafter. But the interest of this is that she was quite an old lady then, but she didn't manage to rise to the occasion and reach out with her style on a few occasions, into the Romantic era. And it seems to me that this portrait of Count Tolstoy is a really wonderful statement of that style. And it also says something about her in in a sense that I may or may not have mentioned before, which is that she remained, she remained loosely connected to people she met and whose portraits she painted. And she rather often painted someone's sister-in-law or their child or their close personal friend. And this made a sort of international network because people did travel very freely in the late 18th century. And once the Napoleonic Wars were over again, and these international connections stayed with her for her entire life. Last two things. The show is pretty heavily weighted from the mid-1770s to about 1800. There are only about a dozen or so pictures from Vijay's last 42 years. Any particular reason? Yes, there are two reasons. One is because I believe that you cannot get too many of the pictures that she painted in the 1770s. You should try to have as many as possible because they're really most exceptional. As far as I'm concerned, this lady had reached her peak by the time she was in her late 20s. And my feel, my colleague in Ottawa is of the same opinion. And so we chose the pictures together. That's one reason. The second reason in the case of New York, but not of Ottawa, is that in the United States, as you know, we are unable to borrow anything from Russia. This has, in, 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 in the present time, nothing to do with museum policy. It has to do with other cultural and literary policy. And in fact, it has to do with Jewish documents that are held in Russia and that are claimed by an American sect. The result of this is that the Russians fear efforts at seizure of works of art should they be lent here and fear that we could not guarantee their immunity. The result of this is that the Russian museums do not lend to the United States at all anything. So we could not have had the loans from Russia, which went to both Paris and to Ottawa. 
And I think the place to conclude is with Vijay's memoir and, and why she chose to write one, Souvenir. This is something so fascinating. She says that she was encouraged to write her souvenir as if it had not been her idea. But she Everybody could not... Everybody who writes a memoir says they were encouraged to write a memoir. Exactly. <laughs> but she could not ever have not considered it because she began keeping a record of all the people who sat for her when she was a 20-year-old girl. And there are not very many artist memoirs and there are not very many detailed artist memoirs. And it allowed her to shape a picture of herself in an unusually fine degree of detail. And the thing that this causes me to wonder, of course, is what we all wonder about all memoirs, and that is, to what extent has she improved herself and in what ways? And then, of course, one always wonders about the things one doesn't know that people choose not to tell. And there were plenty of those, too. Terrific. Catherine Bacher, thanks so much for talking with me. I so much enjoyed it. Thank you. Getty 360. Surround yourself with inspiration. Whether you are looking for live music, experimental theater, intriguing talks, or unique art and food-themed courses, Getty 360 has you covered. Discover the multitude of public offerings at the Getty Center and Getty Villa at getty.edu slash 360, or download the free app. And we're back. Nancy Prinzenthal, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the specifics of Agnes Martin's life and work, I want to ask you a question that T.J. Clark likes talking about. In fact, kind of a question he made the subject of his Mellon lectures at the National Gallery a few years ago. And I think it's a pretty relevant question with Martin. Do you, as a biographer, as somebody who wrote this fascinating book, do you read biography into the art? Do you read the art into the artist's biography? Or do you try to separate the art from the person with a, as much of a brick wall as, as, as you can build, as kind of Clark likes to ad, advocate for? That is an essential question uh, for any biographer of an artist in particular, and especially for a first-time biographer like me. Um, this is my first foray into full-scale biography. So I did write an earlier book about Hannah Wilkie that was meant to be a monograph, but of course with an artist like Wilkie, the life and the work are much harder to separate. And with Martin, that was the question that hovered over my work from the very beginning. I tried to be careful to stay focused on aspects of her life that I think have some bearing on her work. When I first undertook to write about Agnes Martin, there are some key aspects of her life that I was completely unaware of. And a key one was that she suffered from mental illness. She was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, certainly by the 1960s when she was in her 50s, um, probably earlier. And I was very careful, or I tried to be very careful to steer away from treating the work as symptom, as cure, as even as a way of modulating her internal experience. But at the same time, I think that that aspect of her character, as well as many aspects of the communities that she lived in, were very important to her development as an artist. And she lived in some pretty interesting communities. You mentioned that Martin lives in some pretty interesting communities. She was... You know, if we, if we, you know, she's she's born in 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 Canada and in, in what is now Saskatchewan, and and before too long finds her way to the United States. And once she does, she spends a long period as a sort of itinerant teacher slash artist. How did that kind of happen, and what impact does it have on on her? It happened, I think, in part because that was a fairly common route for women who knew they were going to undertake to live independently at a time when very few employment opportunities were on offer. You know, she was born in 1912, so she, you know, her earliest adulthood was in the depths of the Depression, and to be a school teacher was was one of one of the sort of primary options for single women, independent women. And it kind of, I think, propelled her 
out of her mother's home and into a self-supporting situation. And it continues to be a way that artists support themselves. Certainly a lot of artists earn at least a a partial portion of their income from teaching. I also think there's an aspect of both her character and her work that has to do with a kind of discipline, and she talks about herself with both humor and a certain degree of pride as a disciplinarian. She says that being a disciplinarian is something she picked up from her mother who could achieve discipline by doing that much more than raising an eyebrow, which is something that Burton seems to have been able to do or reports having done in the many years that she was a teacher and also taking jobs as you know a sort of dorm matron or sort of all-purpose crowd control in the classroom or crowd control in, in residences situations. Some of these stories are a little murky. It appears that her very earliest teaching was in quite simple, even primitive, one-room schoolhouse situations in the rural Northwest when she had her first teaching degree in Bellingham, Washington, and, and taught in rural Washington State before coming out to New York, and then she taught in a number of different places in the elementary and, you know, at the grade school levels before she briefly became a teacher at the college level. I don't think that she had the kind of give and take in the classroom that we associate with teachers who continue to teach at the college level throughout their career and and really thrive on absorbing information from their students and, and articulating their ideas through their teaching. I think by the time Martin, I know by the time Martin achieved her mature style, she was no longer teaching. Do you think that the experience of moving around so much across the Northwest, across the Southwest, to New York, and back and back, <laughs> surfaces in the work, or or does it surface in the work less than one maybe might expect? Mm, that's such an interesting question. She was a restless soul. Boy, was she. At a time when, I mean, especially during World War II, when I can only imagine because of, of various restrictions such as fuel, it would have been a little harder to move around. Yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, there are aspects of her life that I was not able to fill in. That's something I, I think I've tried to be um, candid about in my book. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of research being done on Martin as we speak. Maybe some of these gaps will be filled in in the next few years as scholars continue to dig out the details of her life, there's very little archival material. But a couple of things are but interesting. It's worth, it's worth noting there, though, that I mean, there are artists who were similarly nomadic in the same part right. of the country, such as Clifford Still, for whom there are similar gaps. And she was very good at covering her tracks, and she was also quite good at enforcing a sort of code of silence. She did ask her friends not to talk about her, both while she was alive and after she was gone. And um, some of them have been faithful to that promise. So it was an interesting adventure to put this biography together. But, it, you know, in any case, the, the thing about her nomadic spirit, on the one hand, once she achieved her, her sort of signature style, when she had her commanding inspirations about what her work was going to be, it remained within a fairly fixed set of parameters, even though her life took some kind of hairpin turns. It is also important that Martin, and actually strikingly of a number of her close friends, Lenore Tani, for instance, that she loved to drive. This is something that a lot of Martin's friends talk about with some humor and note her delight. She liked big cars. She liked fancy cars when she was wealthy enough to afford them. She always had one on hand. And she loved to drive at speed and with some abandon. One of the first really important influences that that on, on which or on whom you plant kind of Martin's flag is John Dewey. How did Martin find Dewey and what in Dewey did she find revelatory? You know, I don't, I don't think Martin ever had direct exposure to Dewey, but he was a kind of founding figure at Teachers College where she got her, her second teaching degree. She ultimately got a, a master's degree in education with an with a major in 
visual art at a teacher's college. She completed that degree in 1954, having started there in 1941. So she went back for three stints. And Dewey was sort of the reigning intellectual figure, the, the reigning educational philosopher, of course. And I think there are a couple of things about his spirit that kind of conform to Martin's own, even if she didn't take her cues from him. As a pragmatist, as someone who believed in the efficacy of art, that art should be something that achieved good in the world, I think his character as as a thinker would have appealed to Martin pretty strongly. Of course, she never believed that art should have political or social purpose, but that it should provide viewers with a, a certain experience, an experience of happiness, an experience of innocence, of joy, all of the abstract emotional states that and later in her life she named her works for. And so as a philosopher who named his primary book about art, art as experience, there would have been that sympathy, there would have been that mutual sort of understanding of how it is art moves people in the world, what it's good for. Martin first kind of gains or earns support for her work during an early stint in New Mexico, then then goes to New York, and then kind of goes back and forth a little bit. If we go back to that earliest stint in New Mexico, what kind of work was she making and and what was kind of influencing it? Martin was in New Mexico in the early period. That would be after her first year at Teachers College and then after her second stint there in the, in, the, in 1951-52. So she was there in the middle, late 1940s and then again through the early and mid-1950s. And she ultimately settled in Taos in that period, which is a really lively art community where there was an awful lot of traffic from modernists from the East Coast, from European modernists, painters living in the Northwest. So she was exposed to quite a lot of what was going on in cultural capitals, a little bit of sort of time lag, a little bit of a remove. And she went through a series of, from what we can piece together from the work that she didn't destroy, of course, like many artists, she was very eager to destroy examples of her work that she didn't consider mature. But she went through periods of both fairly conventional landscape painting, um, some of it quite beautiful, you can see the influence of John Marin in those, in those early works, through periods of biomorphic abstraction, landscape-based, and then increasingly abstract, you can see Paul Clay, you can see Miro, you can see Stamos. And then ultimately, the, the work became more abstract still. When she came to New York in 1957 at Betty Parsons's invitation, she was still doing that biomorphic abstraction for a couple of years. Her progress in New York was extremely rapid. But during the New Mexico years, you can see her moving through a number of different stylistic positions. I want to get to that rapidity, that extreme rapidity of progress in New York in a moment. But I guess first, let's get Martin back into New York after after that New Mexico stint. Where where does she move into New York and who else is there? Well, when she came to New York, which... I said was at Betty Parsons's invitation. Parsons had seen her work in New York during the years when she was at Teachers College. Parsons was also a frequent visitor to New Mexico, and on that 1957 trip, she made this offer to Martin, which she made to other artists as well, which was, you one representation by me, you've got to make a commitment to live in New York, which was a challenge that I think was helpful. Um, I think it, it definitely bumped up artists' games to live in a very lively community like the one that Martin wound up in in New York. And so when she first came to New York, she lived for a couple of months with Betty Parsons on 14th Street. And then at her invitation, Martin went down to the Coenti Slip area, and that's where she set up shop. And that was an extremely lively, varied community of artists. And what other artists were there? Who, 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 With whom did she quickly become friends? So some of the artists that 
were there were Jack Youngerman, Ellsworth Kelly was important to her, Robert Indiana. Kelly in Indiana and Kelly in particular were close to her both as friends and as artistic, I wouldn't say mentors, although at the same time the influence I think it's important to note was very mutual. There was a lot of back and forth. Agnes was the elder, one of the elder artists down there. She was 45 when she arrived in New York. Most of the artists she hung out with were a little bit significantly younger than she was. And although she was still finding her feet as an artist, she was a compelling person. She exuded, this goes back to her skills in disciplinary, and she exuded a certain amount of um, command. I think she had that in her personality. And uh, she was smart. She knew what she, she was after, and she paid a lot of attention to what was going on around her. Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg were down there as well. They weren't the closest of friends with Martin, but their influence was certainly felt. They were among the artists who gained success most quickly down there. So it was a very varied scene. Uh, she was very close with Ed Reinhardt when she was living in the Coenties Slip neighborhood. So she saw him often, although he didn't live there. And those were some of the influences. She was also very close with Lenore Tawney when she was living in the Coenties Slip area. Lenore Tawney, of course, is a textile artist, a weaver. So many critics have seen a mutual influence there, that there's a, an element in Martin's development of the grid of a kind of woven texture to the work, which she adamantly denied. She um, got quite annoyed when people made a connection between her development of grids and anything to do with textiles or indeed with anything to do with the merest hint of figurative reference. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.